Hi, Trevor. Good to have you on the show. Hi, Hardy. It's been a pleasure. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Um, could you please tell us a little bit more about like what you do, what you're currently involved in, what kind of projects you're involved in, and so on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, other people describe me as uh, a serial entrepreneur, which means I build and sell companies, but I think of myself more as a, a fixer guy, really. <laughs> I find <laughs> problems that need fixing and then figure it out and become an entrepreneur by default, really. So that's, that's kind of how my life has been for the last 20, 25 years. Um, I use a unique business model that allows me to build well, you know, we live in a, a culture of, of getting big fast. So it allows me to build quickly, um, but and it, it's very economical. It has all kinds of uh, benefits when a company is a certain size. But when a company gets a little bit bigger, that model doesn't work very very well. So I usually I usually exit by you know selling it to an investor or selling it to another company at that point. So I'm on company number four and five now. I've sold three. Um, I'm not talking about you know tiny little companies. Total value of all five would be about 600 million so far. So it's you know doesn't make me Jeff Bezos or, or Richard Branson, but I'm not complaining. I'm quite happy. The, you know, the, uh, part of the key number. thing is I've, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've never had another employee and I don't work more than five hours a day. And that's my that's my message to most people, really. That's what I'm doing at the moment because I've launched a new book uh, called Seekers to a Successful Starter. But it includes a little bit of that information in there about, you know, when you work on your own, you can get burned out so quickly. So in order to keep sort of a peak brain performance, you need to really restrict how you work during the you know, during your work day. So I work, I work sort of five dedicated hours and then I, uh, I take five dedicated relaxation periods. So it's a pretty good life. I like it. <laughs> awesome. So um, before we talk about your new book and um, yeah, scaling a company and so on and so forth, like I think um, everyone who's listening to this right now, they would like really, really love to hear like, um, how did you build your first company or, or scale your first company to like a hundred million? And I know you've shared your stories before, but um, I think uh, people would really love to hear this. Yeah, so I mean, the key thing is is how you start. So, so the first thing you really need is a winning idea. You know, you don't want to be just mm. another plumber or just another landscaper. You know, you want something that mm. no one has thought of before. And that that means like you know, and that's a particular technique. I mean, I I, I teach a, t a technique for how to come up with winning ideas, and it involves doing some things that other people that people might not have in the, their regular life and might think a bit crazy, but what is meditation? So meditating every single morning, I've been doing it since I was probably 16 years old and all of my great ideas come after or even during a meditative period, only 20 minutes, but um, you know, it's probably the only 20 minutes during the day that I have to myself. So I sort of kind of treat myself to 20 minutes of Trevor Blake time. And uh, and then I have these great ideas. And then the key thing, you know, lots of people have great ideas, but then they don't they don't react to them and they soon fade away and someone else picks up the same idea. And then you look at it years later and say, my God, look what they did with that idea. I had that idea when I was only 20 and you don't want to be in that situation. So so what you have to do is you, 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 there's a technique I have in, in my books and courses that, to, to come up with winning ideas. But then the key thing is to react forward once you've had that idea, do something immediately to cement it. So I always recommend that if you have a winning idea and you, it's just, a winning idea is the sort of thing that makes you smack your forehead and say, why haven't I thought of that before? When you have those beautiful <laughs> aha moments, then, then you incorporate that idea. Just give it a name. Spend a hundred dollars online uh, to an online incorporation company, and, and and then you've got a real company. And about a week later, you get some mail come to come to you, and it'll have your name, you know, Trevor G. Blake, CEO, name of company. <laughs> yeah, so my very first company, I I, I I first name I came up with was my initials. So I I called it uh, TGB International, LLC, because um, we have LLCs here in America. 
Um, it would be limited if it was in England or, or, or somewhere like that. I'm not sure what German the equipment in Germany is, but a limited yeah, type of equipment to protect it. So uh, and, and so it becomes real, and then so I, I photocopied that piece of paper and stuck it everywhere in my life in the car, and because I, I was doing a regular job at the time, so every in my office, my car, the bathroom, on the mirror, that sort of thing. So I saw myself as the CEO of this real company every single day, and that's all you have to do. And then it starts to grow in your mind, and once it grows in your mind, it grows in real life too. It just sort of you just it just sort of people you know crazy things happen. I'd be in a line for coffee and and start talking to somebody, and they turn out to be the perfect investor. You know, those, those magical things happen when you when you react forward and then keep it in the forefront of your mind. And I've done that ever since. It wasn't just that it worked once. I've done that five times now. And 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 um, like, how did you get your first customers and so on and so forth? So, in your opinion, like, first you have to get the right idea. And I have to to put a disclaimer. I I I, I you 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 have way more experience than I do, obviously. But um, I think you can also make a living, a good living, doing what a lot of other people are doing. Like probably you can't scale to those numbers, but if you just want to have like a lifestyle business in your 20s or something, like you can probably make six figures, mid six figures, low seven figures easily. Um, after a few years or a few months. Um, doing something that a lot of other people are doing because I'm not doing something special and I can make a living. <laughs> We are running a digital agency, so it's a pretty standard uh, service. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I'm, um, the, the thing is, when I was your age, okay, it wouldn't yeah. have been possible because because we didn't have the internet and it would, and the way to do business yeah. was to you start small and then you get some referrals or in your case you get a, a group of listeners or whatever and then you get slightly bigger, slightly bigger and then you go regional and if you're brilliant you go national, okay. But today you can come up with a winning idea and you can engage the globe instantly. Yeah. You can go from zero to any number you want to dream about almost instantly, <laughs> as long as there's a winning idea, as long as you've got something <laughs> that's nice and different. And you know that's never been possible before. I mean, even you know, we're here in the U.S. We just we started our recession. We're probably going to go into a depression. It's not going to be a surprise to anybody because markets go up and down over time anyway. You know, recessions are the best time to start something, no matter what it is. The why do you think? Why do you think that? Well, so I started two of my five companies in a recession. One was in 2001, the credit crunch. The other was 2008, which was a, up until that point in time was the, considered the worst, the worst recession. A funny thing happens, if it, when everything's sunny and there's a bull market and everyone's happy and everyone's got plenty of business, and I knock on the door and say, hey, I've just come up with an idea. I want to start a company. They slam the door in my face because they don't need my business. But then when we're in a recession, if I knock on the same door, they'll go, oh, sorry, we were so rude to you before. Do come in. <laughs> let me make you a cup of tea. Tell me all about your business. You know, it's a completely different um, world for a startup. And, uh, and I like it. And I sort of get my little bit of revenge. I, I, I'll call people up on purpose, even though I don't want to work with them, just to, just to say, hey, look what I did. Um, and, but the other thing is there's also tremendous supply. You know, and it's cheap supply. So, so again, when when things are going really well, it's almost impossible to negotiate with a say a manufacturer and, and say, look, I've just started. I don't want to pay for 90 days, mm -hmm. right? No, they're not interested. But in a recession, they're going to say, you know, well, how can we negotiate the terms? And I'll say, well, I want six months with no payment because I want to build up some revenue first, and and then we can start the the, the process. Mm -hmm. you, you get much better, much you've got much more power in negotiation in a recession, and I think that's one of the key things. Plus, you know, there's, there's lots of people who are out of work who you know, maybe a fed up of being fired, a fed up of being downsized or whatever the politically correct thing is we talk about these days. And they, they, they you know, the, the attraction of going into a small company that can grow 
you know people are people are keener to do that because they can say okay i can stay a long time with this company whereas if i go back to mr and mrs corporation as soon as as soon as we downturn again they're just going to get rid of me again it you know it's interesting um in February, there were six percent more startups in America than this time last year, and, and you and you tend to see that that it's it's the time for people to they just get fed up, like I did, get, you know, you just get fed up and say, look, I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna do this myself, this yeah. idea, and uh, that's it really. It's a fun and, time and, if you've got your eyes open. And and this I think goes really against like like most i think most people are like they think that the recession or uh, starting a business in a recession is probably the worst time to start a business like um most people i think think that don't you so yeah that's why i write about it that's that's why i want to get that <laughs> message out there because because almost God, everybody yeah. I come everyone i talk to says that it says oh i'll wait till this is over that, no, yeah. no 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 do it now <laughs> this is the best time so that's what you know secrets to a successful startup <laughs> I took I, I wrote that in uh, 2014, but I put it on the shelf, and the tagline says a recession-proof guide to starting, mm. surviving, and thriving. I chose that title because this recession was so predictable, primarily through the corporate buybacks and corporate bonds. I mean, you could say it was like building a skyscraper on a block of ice. At some point, when those corporate buybacks stop, the whole thing is going to c- come collapsing down. Um, and of course, all with the virus, that's like the, the virus isn't causing recession, but it's going to exacerbate it and deepen it. And yeah. greed is the cause of the recession, always. Um, yeah. And so, so you could predict that, you know. And uh, that's what I—that's why I, I put it out there so that people can see it. The funny thing is, I launch it, and then all the bookshops close down in lockdown. <laughs> so you can't see it. That time. But when, when we open up, hopefully people will see it on the shelf and say, "Now that's interesting—a recession-proof guide," and that'll help them because it's a step-by-step guide. It's basically, you know, follow. It's like painting by numbers. Follow this, and you'll be okay. Yeah, I, I, I've talked to uh, a few like um, very successful investor, uh, investors, hedge fund managers and so on and so forth on the podcast already. And yeah, like a, a couple of months ago before Corona and so on and so forth, like they were saying that, okay, like like probably anytime soon there will be a recession like i think like brilliant people already knew that something might be happening in a few months or half a year or something so yeah and you know recession especially for investors and hedge funds recessions they, they can't wait for a recession because that's where they make their <laughs> money so they're, they're probably they're probably sitting there going come on come on collapse will you collapse you know and, and then the, you know it goes the market collapses say 20 percent, and they're they're out there with champagne celebrating i mean that's how they yeah. <laughs> that's how they function so i'm sure they contribute to it in some way yeah so so um you have to tell us like because i think um most entrepreneurs like most people who are listening to this, they're in their early 20s, mid-20s, early 30s or something. And um, I think a lot of people that first get into business, like their their biggest problem is like getting customers. Like um, they create a beautiful website, they have their social media channels up and running quickly, but um, they have like a hard time like making making money. Like maybe they get a customer, then they lose a customer and it's this huge like upward battle. Like how... Did you personally make it happen, or, or how did you personally um, were able to constantly like get customers, scale your business, and so on and so forth? Yeah, for me, the really important thing, what makes a, a part of a winning idea, is to make sure that whatever you do is niched. 
that it's different, it's differentiated from everybody else because that helps you then look at a market and differentiate the market. So you can narrow, you know, you've got potentially 7 billion customers for every business and you can narrow it down to the people that you think are really going to buy what it is that you're going to sell. And the key part of that process is when you're going through this sort of winning idea, then you've incorporated, now you've got, now you're thinking about how do I grow this? That's the business plan process. And I I don't believe in business plans like as static pieces of paper that they're pointless. No one reads them. You just chuck them in a trash can. <laughs> um, but the process is really important. So, so in the process, you're, you're trying to you're trying to think, okay, who is my most likely early adopter of what it is that I'm trying to get across? And you go out and talk to them. And that's the simplest thing in the world. But I, I meet so many entrepreneurs that haven't ever got away from their desk or out of their home and actually gone and talked to potential customers. Mm-hmm. So you have to find places to go. Now, in your business, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert in your business, so I don't know where it would be. But in my businesses, there are certain trade shows and seminars and conferences that I know that if I go to, I'm in, in the audience here are a lot of potential customers. And so I, I, I have to have the confidence and the courage to go and feel like I belong. And it's, it's pretty mm. intimidating when you're starting out because you think, is my idea really that good? You know, am I good enough? Do I have the confidence to pull this off? But but when you put yourself in that situation, you start to gain confidence simply by interacting with these people. And um, so I've done that with all my businesses, particularly with my first one. And with my first one, I probably met you know, in, in about an 18-month period while the, while the idea was still sort of fermenting, I probably met about 200 potential customers, okay? It doesn't sound a lot, mm-hmm. but these, these, these are big players. And that included my you know, distributors and, 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 um, and, and users of the product. And I realized in those conversations that uh, they're not the ones that make the purchase decision and there's somebody else I didn't even know existed. And in my case, it was called a pediatric endocrinologist. I'd never even heard of them. I didn't know what they were and what they did. But I realized that I could shrink my, I could target my my efforts down to an even smaller number of people. And in the mm. end, what I thought was, you know, a, um, you know, the massive U.S. pharmaceutical market, which is my first uh, company, um, I, I narrowed it down to 1,500 subspecialists. And then it made it much easier for me to say, okay, I don't have that much money, so I can use my money much smarter now by targeting this audience. And then I made them my experts and they taught everybody else so so that they they were so pleased to be the experts in this field that i would and and to have a solution to their problem they couldn't wait to then talk to pediatricians which is a massive audience which i couldn't get to and then the pediatricians when they had a few successes they couldn't wait to teach the general physician so uh, it was just i i gave it a fancy name because i did write a, a one-page summary and i called it um a strategic market segmentation <laughs> <laughs> very powerful yeah, yeah, and always, that, yeah. Everyone and that, needs an acronym, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, it really comes uh, that uh, it really boils down to like reverse engineering and putting yourself in the shoes of the other person. Like, for instance, um, I think a lot of people, like you've mentioned, they probably go to broad and they probably aren't like thinking about okay, who is my ideal customer? And um, I want to throw in for everyone who is listening to this, like what I'm realizing right now in my own business is that um, at first I was only targeting like very small business owners and selling contracts for a few hundred bucks. And in my trainees, I'm obviously very happy selling those contracts. But what I'm now like finding out is that, man, like selling something for a lot more it's like this. I'm putting the same energy selling a contract for five, eight, twelve k a month, 
than selling a contract for five hundred dollars. Like yeah. it's the same yeah. effort. Like so so like a big lesson for me right now for everyone who is listening to this. Like work with rich people. Like <laughs> like uh, like like this is like a very huge lesson for me because I was only selling to small business owners all the time. So um, I think like yeah, we have to to maybe think about that. I think it's a great point. I've had a similar experience, but in a sort of in the reverse way, in that trying to raise funds. When yeah. I first went out, I very carefully planned through my business process that I needed exactly $2.1 million. That's what I had to borrow. So yeah. I went out and borrowed, and eventually it took me a while, but eventually got $2.1 million. And then I realized afterwards, I got to so the investors and, the, and I become friends over time when we start. Mm. And then I suddenly realized through our conversations, sort of whiskey-driven and wine-driven conversations <laughs> at nighttime, people sort of open up and admit to things, that if I had asked for $5 million, they'd have given me $5 million, and they wouldn't have taken any more of the company. I, so they Crazy. took 30% of the company for 2.1 million. They would have taken 30% for 5 million, a 30% for 10 million. And I learned a really important lesson. It took, it took me 18 months to get that 2.1 million. And then two years later, it took me six weeks to raise 28 million. That's huge. I would say that's like, like I'm probably still thinking way too small, but. <laughs> oh, there's, a, there's definitely a magic to thinking big, definitely. So, 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 so niching down is like really, really important. And reverse engineering the process, thinking about like who's your target customer, uh, who's your, your ideal client, and um, who's your target audience. So, 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 what are the next steps? What are the next step, steps to scaling a company? So, th- you have to look at the. I mean, every market is different, but I believe there's a there's a business model that works for just about everybody. But it's a business model whose time has come. And um, I, I came across, I, I designed this business model because of what I've just been telling you about. I borrowed 2.1 million and then realized I didn't have any more money to, to, do, to, to do anything. And so, so I think, well, how am I going to market this and how am I going to get manufactured? So, I, you know, necessity is always the mother of invention. So, so I came up with a business plan that was basically a hub model. It was a model of alliances. And, and one of the reasons, there's many reasons for doing it. One is because I had to preserve cash. Another reason for doing it is in my regular career, you know, I, I looked at back at my career and I, I had a good career, kind of fast track career and um, in sales and marketing primarily. And and uh, I spent 75 percent of my life sitting in a meeting room talking about uh, personnel issues, not about profit, not about services, not about customer satisfaction. But sorry, about- sorry to interrupt, but but how old were you when you started your first real company? Forty one. Oh, OK. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, I, so my career, my career path was uh, Royal Navy, and and then um, almost a decade working in a hospital as a radiation uh, physicist, and and um, and then I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, which I I did because I didn't have any money. My wife and I we, we thought we'd lo- lose our house. We we're going to get repossessed because we couldn't afford the mortgage. She was a nurse. I was I was mm-hmm. a radiation technologist, and in the National Health Service in the UK, this was uh, your salaries aren't that good. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, you, you don't work in the National Health Service because you want to make money. You do it because you care. And uh, but but the downside is you know we've got, we're about to lose our house. So I said, well, loads of people have been asking me to be you know you'd be great as a as a sales rep, but I didn't like any of the sales reps that told me that. <laughs> I thought they were arrogant <laughs> and and not very smart. And uh, so I put it off for as long as possible. And then I said, you know, I'm going to do this for a year, get us back mm-hmm. on our feet, and then I'll go back to what we were doing. But I just took to it like a duck takes to water. So I had a fast track career. I started off as a trainee sales rep in 19. 19- 87 and then i was vice president commercial development by 1994 so that's pretty fast in in, in any business yeah. so, so um, but i but the higher up the food chain i got the less contact i had with customers and the more time i spent in meeting rooms talking about you know trying to trying to make all the employees happy and 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 try to retain them try to reduce our turnover and um 
and when you start your own company, you know, most people learn that style of working management because they work in a traditional hierarchical corporation. And when you start your own company, most people, most entrepreneurs then start hiring people. They start to hire an assistant or a head of sales or and a head of marketing, a, a software engineer, hardware people. Um, and it's a mistake because that's a, that's like buying a house and hiring a full-time uh, handyman just in case something goes wrong. Mm. You know, there's a t- there's a time to hire a full time handyman, and that's when you you own ten houses. It make then it makes economic yeah. sense. And so I had to, I had to, I thought of it a little differently. So I thought I don't want to be doing that because I've got to focus on growing. I've got to I've got to you know get get these investors their money back. And uh, and so I came up with the the model of alliances or the hub model, and that basically meant um, and, and, and sorry to interrupt. And, yeah, and, and, and sorry to interrupt. Like. Could you, before you continue, could you please tell us, like, when do you think is a good time to raise money and when is a bad time? Because I think there are, like, two different camps of entrepreneurs. There are some that are, like, you should never raise money, do it on your own, yada, yada, yada. And there are some, like, you have to invest money. It's all about raising money. Uh, it's all about raising money. And, yeah. So so could you please share share your opinion on, on that with us? And, and then please continue. Yeah. So the... the, the You know, what people miss, I think, sometimes is that investors don't just bring money. They bring networks, ideas. They, they bring, they bring you, you can also use their own, their accounts, do your own accounting. And just, you know, you can beg, steal and borrow from your investors because they want you to succeed. So they'll help you in any way you want. So the biggest, so even today, even though in my company's four and five, I, pro, I don't need investors. I could do it all, do it all myself. I like investors because they, first of all, they, they um, come to a company with, no preconceived notion of how it's supposed to work. So they're always challenging me. Why are we doing that? Why do we need this? Mm. That's very healthy. And the second thing is that they, they say, have you ever heard of such and such? And I'll say, no. They say, well, I talked to this guy at this this place. He's got this this idea. Would you like to talk to him, see what you think of it? And and when we, we were talking before about it, I started with, with raising 2.1 million and then later raised 28 million. It was That's exactly what happened. One of the investors or a friend of one of the investors came to me and says, I've seen these three products. This company is really struggling. They're desperate for cash. This would be a great time to do a, a negotiation. Would you do some due diligence, see what you think? I did some due diligence. I loved the products, bought them myself. And uh, so mm-hmm. that's basically saved that company because the share price then was, I think it was 50 cents or something. The share price eventually when they sold was $200. And um, and, and I got these three products that took my company from being a small company to a you know, $100 million company. And so, so I, I like investors. They bring tremendous, especially if they don't understand the industry. They bring real fresh eyes. So that's, that's very important to me. And, and, and could you please continue with um, the, uh, the story you wanted to, to share with us beforehand? If you can remind me what it was, I will do. Oh, it'll pop back in our brains at some point. So, 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 um, Trevor, let, let, let's talk about, um, let's, let's talk about the importance of sales. So, um, you said that you had like great sales skills before getting into entrepreneurship. Um, could you please share with us like the importance of sales, being able to sell, uh, having salesmanship skills? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously very, very opinionated about this because it's been a large part of my life. But um, I didn't think that I could sell a rope to a drowning man. Okay. Um, my father was kind of a salesman, and he was not a good, it was not a good role model in that way. And so I, I was totally against sales. All the sales reps that came to visit me and tried to sell me stuff, I, I thought. They were like snake oil salesmen. I didn't trust them at all. So I went into sales thinking that I wouldn't be very good at it, but I'd try and survive as long as possible, get some money, go back. 
And I found that I was really good at it because I'm a good listener. Mm. And that was, and I found out that the key, because I was nervous, okay, I was, I was a nervous salesperson and I, and I was sat there in front of a customer thinking, what's my next question going to be? I've got to ask a question. And then I found myself, you know, if I was doing that, I wasn't listening. So I stopped mm-hmm. doing it. And I just listened to what the customer had to say. And I responded to what the customer told me. And they would express to me a need that they had. And it may or may not be satisfied by the product that I was there to sell. But it didn't matter. I would always try and help them resolve their need, whether it was to my benefit or not. And I found that then I started to have this quite a very trusting relationship with all the customers. And so um, that's how I got onto the fast track, really, because they would report, you know, so the company would send people out to to the main customers and ask them how they're doing, check on the product. And they would say such favorable things about me that it went back up the food chain and people at the top of the company are hearing, well, who is this guy, this Trevor Blake? He's just a sales guy, isn't he? Yeah, but he, the customers really love him and all this kind of thing. And it was only because I could listen because I didn't, didn't really know what I was doing. And that was, Crazy. And that was it. And I've, I've carried that on actually all through my life. And as an entrepreneur, I find it's the most important thing too, particularly in the business plan process. Um, oh, I think we were talking about the business model. Weren't we? So in the business plan process, um, getting out and talking you know when you when you meet your customers and your, your potential vendors it's not for you to try and sell your idea and convince them of how brilliant you are as, a, as an entrepreneur same with investors it's not about you mm-hmm. it's about the service and the product and you want their opinion and so you're asking them you know please tell me what about this that i've explained you find an issue with or what about this do you think would be really exciting and and you you know you you use you don't use closed questions like uh, do you like it no you know, you don't use any close question where people can say yes or no. You just learn to use open questions like how and when and where and, and what. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when you ask those questions, most people go off on a story. If you if you say if you t- if we, I used to do sales training, believe it or not, and it, you know it's it's astounding that I was training people in sales when I when I started off didn't know what I had no idea what I was doing. And one of the things I used to do was talk, tell a story about okay, you know you've just I've just been on holiday. Ask me a question, and people would say, where did you go? And I'd say mm-hmm. Florida, and I gave one-word answers to everything until they got the message that if you only ask closed questions, you know, did you have a good time? Yeah. Right. And then finally, one person around the table will go, "What did you like most about where you stayed?" And there you're off. And I would say, mm-hmm. oh, "I stayed in this fantastic hotel. We had a beautiful veranda, and I saw some dolphins in the morning." And now you've got conversation, and now you've got trust building between two people. So that that there's really not much more to it than that. You just need a, a little little courage to get out there, and and then you know. Ask some some open-ended questions: what, where, how, and sit back and listen. Yeah, and and what I also learned is that um, I think most sales reps think it's about like the punchlines or being clever or saying stupid things like you have to buy now or never or um, those 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 lines. I think it's really not at all about those lines. Like um, because I think um, what's really really important or what's way more important than that is um focusing like you've said um listening to the customer because i think when you are listening to the other person they are giving you so much material so much material that they, they, they are they're telling you their objections um reasons why they might not buy why they should buy they're giving you so so many points that you can later latch on to and talk about those things and it's like way easier to sell them when they're giving you all those uh, all the material to to they're giving you so much material 
on how they want to be sold, basically, um, that this is the reason I think why like listening is like very, very important. And what we're having here is exactly what is supposed to happen between a customer and a salesperson or, or, or an entrepreneur <laughs> and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, an investor, et cetera, because you don't have a script and I don't have a script, right? You, no. I have no idea what you're going to ask me and you have no idea what I'm going to me, say. Me neither. Yeah. So, so what you end up with, this is how I do my, my courses. My courses are unscripted. And so, so for the very reason that if I had a script, it would be a two-dimensional message that I'm trying to get across. And yeah. and that would and it's not you know that's not a conversation that's not how we how we are when we do it like this we're kind of open to whatever thoughts come into our heads and yeah, it makes for a much more dynamic in, exchange and 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 it makes for instant friendships to be honest to to do that and and interesting when I when I started as a salesperson they did give me scripts and they and when I had my regional sales manager checking on me I used the script but as soon as he was gone I didn't use the script <laughs> but when I was when I was a, when I was teaching sales uh, sales techniques I tore up all the scripts. And and we we just free flow. It's free association. Yeah. I mean, we, that's the beauty of being human. You know, that's that's the beauty of conversation. And and we were very successful. I mean, as a, a my groups were very always always the winning groups. You know, and I think they felt the pressure was off because oh, so there's really so I don't have to say like you said I don't have to say these magic phrases. You know, yeah, exactly. And they're so corny, and you hear them all the time, and you know, yeah, and 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 and. But but I also think like having said that that um, listening is like very very important. I think there are like a few mechanisms to how our brains are wired. That um, if you are like a good sales rep, you can really uh, use this to your favor. For instance, social proof. Like if you are having social proof, if if you can say like. For instance, like an example on my podcast, like I had this, this, this guy on my show. Do you want to join my show? People are nowadays way, 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 way a million times more likely to hop on my show because I have like I had so many guests on. This is like I'm, I'm nearly at 300 episodes right now because I had so many guests on. Then like when I first started out, the same goes with um, if you had like um, cl previous clients in the niche where you are pitching the guy from like for instance he's like in the automobile industry and you had like clients in the automobile industry and you say like i had this 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 guy uh this guy th those guys are using my services um he's way more likely to buy so i think there are like a few mechanisms that you can really use to your favor like being uh an expert in your niche or also for instance like having a long track record um yeah, being like able. There are a few mechanisms that also can really turn uh, turn the stacks into your favor. So, in in, in my world, um, proof of concept is also really important. So, mm -hmm. so um, it, you know, it, sometimes it's, if you have a winning idea, typically it's something that no one else has thought of yet, and yeah, so yeah. there's a bit of cynicism. You know, and if you go to an investor and say, "Look, I've got this idea. I'm going to make you a billion dollars," <laughs> there's the, there's the door. Close on your way out. You know, and, um, thank you for coming. Um, so, but if you go in there and you say, "Look, I got this great idea, and I've started it on a small scale, and I gave it free to this customer, and they used it for for three months, and they achieved these data points. You know, they saved money, or they made money, or they uh, reduced time to do something, whatever it may be. When yeah. when you have that proof of concept in in a, in a sort of standard product or service business, that's that's a golden thing to take into an investor or or to customers as well. Say, so, look, I gave it, then they you know they know the customer. I gave it to to Joe Bloggs over here, they did this mm -hmm. with it. Imagine what it will do for you. Um, that I, I find that's a critical step that most people uh, miss in business. And so, so the, the early stage of business, 
of your own business can be a bit of a struggle until you get that proof of concept. So if you have the means, if you have the capital to do some kind of proof of concept, whatever that that, that would look like to your to your listeners, um, that, that's a very good. That's that's probably a better way to invest your money before you start a business than any any other thing. Proof of concept and 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 um, how would this look like? And because yeah, could you please share? share well, for, share for me, for me, my first company was product based. So. So, so I had this this great business plan. We've talked about that before. So the mm. business plan and and the model has never been done before. So no one's ever tried to build a pharmaceutical style company without employees and without a bricks and mortar place and you know all of these reporting structures. And so I was saying, but I don't want to train people. And I don't have the time to train people. I I want to get vendors who are experts at what they do. And I know that they exist. They typically are, bought, are used by big pharmaceutical companies when they have a product launch. They they hire extra salespeople. They hire extra regulatory. I said, I'm going to make them my my 100%. They're going to be my regulatory, my salespeople. Um, but I'm but I'm not going to employ them. I'm just going to contract with them, with the mm -hmm. company. And so and so you know we, we did all that. And it's looked great on paper and on the PowerPoint presentation. Everyone's going, wow, that looks fantastic. But no one was going to take the leap of faith because you know I'd never been a CEO before. And this is my first mm -hmm. company. People was kind of resistance a little bit to that. Well, you've not done it before, you know. So I actually, I actually found a product that I could get for free. It was tiny. It was a tiny product, had hardly any sales at all. And so I, I built the model around this tiny little. It was called Elliot's B Solution. And so I built the model around Elliot's B Solution. It did $120,000 a year, which in pharmaceutical terms is nothing. You know, it's like a, okay. a post, that's like a post-it stamp. <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's nothing. So, um, so I put, I got all the vendors together. I got the manufacturer. I, got, I put it all, and the thing worked. And I showed that I could take this little product, which no, which everyone else that were, was ignoring, and they were threatening not to make anymore because there was no profit in it. And I grew sales to four hundred thousand dollars in in a very short space of time, in about six months. Again, four hundred thousand would not raise anybody's eyebrows in this world, um, but I showed that I could do it. So then that's how I got the two point one million to buy the product I really wanted, mm. which, which which was doing seven hundred thousand, and then I got that to twelve million, very quickly using the same model. But I don't think I'd have got the 2.1 million just because the guys liked me. I think it's because they saw this model does work. He's gone out yeah. and proved it. He told us about it. We were dubious. He's gone out and he's proved it. He's come back. You know, it's worth the risk. And so that, that's how it all started. And, and I think this is also a great um, um, a, a great lesson for everyone who is listening to this. And I think this like showing that you've done the work or that you've done your research applies to so, so many areas. Because like, for instance, I'm just thinking about like um for instance guys in my age they want to meet like very successful entrepreneurs like you they they want to like uh they, they are emailing like very successful ceos or investors and they're saying like hey do you want to have, like grab a coffee or something and i think this is like probably the worst way to get someone's attention like <laughs> suggesting like i don't know lunch or like grabbing coffee to to someone who is like doing nine figures or beyond like man get serious and um but if you have a good reason if you if you've done the work if you've done your research and you have a good reason to meet them for instance like if i wouldn't invite you to this podcast and i would say like let's grab a coffee you would say like fuck this guy but um <laughs> i gave you a good reason and now i can pick your brain on a million different things so <laughs> yeah it's true. I, I mean i get i get inundated with people with people <laughs> wanting to to pitch me ideas and so I actually, I've actually got to the point where I charge for the pitch now. I charge a thousand dollars just to pitch me, because I know, I know the guy that pays. And actually, 
I shouldn't. I'm not going to tell you what what I do. I, all, all my all my um, all my uh, <laughs> money from book sales, from the courses, and for pitching. I mean, goes to cancer research and development, so it doesn't come into my pocket. Cool. But but um, but I, I do that to to sift the wheat from the chaff because the guy that pays a thousand dollars has has done what you're saying. He's proven his yeah. concept. He believes in it. He does, he's not going to steal my brain just to try and improve his product. He's got he's he's got it pretty much figured out, and it, it becomes a very healthy relationship. It's amazing how few people will pay a thousand dollars to pitch an idea very very mm. few people um, but but the the most recent guy that uh, pitched me he just raised i helped him raise 10 million dollars for his business he's got a brilliant brilliant uh, product it's not in a field that i know anything about but i was so impressed with what he had done um and then and so he he asked me to be his coach and mentor and he was going to pay me a thousand dollars an hour which is what i would, would charge um but he's had it all for free because i love his product and I want to see that <laughs> successful. And I want to be part of the investment in that too, you know, when, when it gets to the next level after the seed funding. And so, and so it works better. Like you're saying, works much better. You can't, you can't just email people and, you know, try and, try and impress them that you've got an idea that no one else has had. You've got to have something to show them. And, and he had a prototype already done um, and, and, and customer feedback from different parts of the world where this would be a very, very impactful um, solution. Yeah. And then I think, um, if you've if you've done the steps or if you've put in uh, if you um, put in the hours, like I think, like you will be probably like really amazed, like what kind of people you can attract. Like for instance, I was just thinking about like I had guys in my first couple of um, podcast episodes, like uh, David Matza, and he's like managing twenty billion, like <laughs> because I've done my research. Um, I've, uh, I've contacted, uh, contacted him, um, through, through a close contact and I had like a really personalized pitch and so on and so forth. So I think like, um, you will probably be amazed. Like you can, you can as a 20 something being nobody can, uh, talk to guys that are way, way, way above your weight class. So, um, yeah. It, it's, I think there's a lot of reasons for that though, to be honest with you, I mean, one of the things that one of the, I've not met a successful entrepreneur, and if I'm arrogant enough to call myself a successful entrepreneur too, if I put myself, you are. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in those classes, but 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 I'm I'm I'm, I'm probably I probably have more fun than most people. I think um, uh, we understand that everything in life is energy. You can't yeah. become successful unless you yourself have evolved in some way. I have a course mm -hmm. called Transformation. It's about personal transformation. It's about it's about getting out of your quicksand and and learning that the world is made of all energy and how and, and how how things change the moment that you change the way you interact with energy. And, you, and, and so most successful entrepreneurs have done that either deliberately or found that out by chance over time. And what you end up getting to is in this kind of a state of flow where energy flows. And when you get into that, you, you, you become the sort of person that understands that this isn't just for you. You're not supposed to hold on to this. When you hold on to energy, it stagnates. Okay, It's like holding mm -hmm. on to water, it just goes stagnant. So you, so you have to give back always. So, so most, most successful entrepreneurs can't wait to give back to those who are coming after them because because you know i had to i, I did most of my stuff by by um trial and error you know and so so i, I you know why should somebody else have to go through the trial and error if you can pick my brain and say okay well i won't make those mistakes i'll do what he said worked and and so you tr you know yeah. you you, it, it's a, it's it's like a fellowship, I think, more like. I mean, same in your business. I mean, I, I bet yeah. if, if if you found somebody who was starting out on the first podcast, you couldn't wait to tell them. You can wait to tell them. Uh, totally, I can totally, totally, totally agree with you on that. But I, but I have to say, um, I think a lot of people they get frustrated um, because um, 
they they quickly find out that most people who are asking you for advice on how to start a business, how to start a podcast or what have you, they aren't really serious. And I think this is like really, really frustrating. Like, um, for instance, like when I started out and people realized, okay, I could make a living doing this. I don't have to go to a job or do, have a nine to five or something in my 20s. Um, they also asked me like how to start a business, how to start an online business and all those questions. And I was like giving them advice and I was so happy that I could help them. But um, then they, they had like, smoking weed on the weekend and playing beer pong like that's when <laughs> you charge a thousand dollars yeah that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the that's the filter right there and that's why you do it exactly because i think like when when people pay for your advice they really pay attention to it and for instance like what i'm doing now is that if someone is asking me for advice and I, if i know this person like personally like I, i've met him in in the gym or on a party or, or somewhere like i always give them advice but i always keep it short and sweet because i don't want to look like an asshole and say like oh no sorry i don't give like free advice or something but i always keep it short and sweet and my mindset is always like this guy will do nothing like 100 <laughs> percent. he won't create the website he won't be pitching anybody this is just nonsense talk and i would just give him like short and sweet advice very generic and then i move on and what i found out this is like a great time saver because most of those guys will never contact you again so <laughs> yeah um so so we were talking about sales and the importance of sales and um the mechanisms what really moves people so what do you think i think what what, what our listeners would love to hear um is like what do you think are really the key motives that someone becomes a customer or an investor and so on and so forth? Like, yeah, could you please speak about that? Yeah, whatever, you, whatever, you, whatever you're in has to make a positive difference in people's lives today. You can't push, yeah. you can't push on the customer anymore. And, uh, and it's switched completely, even the time that I've been in my own businesses. You know, there was a time when I could write a message and try and push it on a customer and try and get it into their head somehow. It doesn't exist anymore. So, so now the, the customer is, uh, pulls information. And, um, you know, if, if, you have a, if you have a satisfied customer, they can tell 20,000 people in five seconds because they've got social media. And mm -hmm. if you dissatisfy a customer, they can do the same thing. But probably people who are dissatisfied tell 100,000 people. So it can be a little bit of a nightmare. So you can no longer get away with, with um, uh, a satisfied customer. You have to delight the customer. Whoever your customer is, the experience has to be so positive that they can't wait to tell everybody else. You've got to go, you've got to go read. Like, for me, it's like, you know, let's say it's a book. You've got to read this guy's book. You know, it made, made such a difference in my life. And he, he's authentic mm -hmm. and he, he, he walks the talk and that sort of thing. That's very, very important. Um, mm -hmm. In the old days, it could be, you know, you know, someone could write a book and their only success in life was the fact that they wrote the book and it caught on. And and, and because it caught on, people, oh, you've read that? No, I want to read that. And it goes like that. Very different world. And it makes it a challenge, but particularly more in your side of the business, in, in your um, industry than it does in mine. Because to to with social media, to create enough noise where you get noticed is really mm. tricky and really tough. Um, and I've, I've chosen to go the opposite way. I don't have social media at all. Um, you know, part of my part of my publishing contracts require that I do certain social media things. And so I, I, I do Facebook thing and I used to do a LinkedIn thing. Um, but I found that it was so expensive. The, 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 I, I just couldn't I could never justify a return on investment of, of 
my efforts in social media. And that's mm-hmm. a bit of a challenge, I think. And it, and it requires really thinking outside the box and, and somehow, sh- sometimes, sometimes in a controversial way, to show that you're different than everyone else that's out there. And, yeah. um, you know, for, for you, you've mentioned it before, clearly um, the quality of, of people that you have on your show makes everybody else who has a certain quality say, okay, this guy's okay. He's not yeah, going to waste exactly. my time. He's not going yeah. to be asking me stupid questions. He's going to be asking good questions. We're going to have a good conversation. You know, so, so you've already got your, you've, you've differentiated yourself from the thousands of other podcasters mm-hmm. out there. Um, I know it probably wasn't easy. It's probably taking you a long time to establish that reputation, but that's the things that you have to do. That's how you have to think when you're starting out. Um, you, you know, the customer must, your listener, who is your main customer, mm-hmm. must be delighted. But I'm also your customer in this conversation right now. Sure. So I have to be delighted too. I have to be, I have to be, you know, more than satisfied. Um, you know, otherwise, I wouldn't refer you to somebody else. So, sure. and, and we live in a world where I, where everybody has the power to refer instantaneously. Yeah. So, so uh, delighting the customer is really important. And I, I also like With what an impactful you said about- product. It's got to be impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got to be an impactful product. It's got to make a difference in people's lives. And, and and I also like what you said about like social media because I think like a lot of people, especially young people, they want to become like YouTubers, podcast hosts, successful bloggers, or something like that. And um, also, what I've realized is that like the world is like a very efficient place. There are like thousands and thousands, or probably millions, of YouTubers and podcast hosts and blogs out there. And um, that's the reason why I think like to really be successful you have to think long term because so so many people are doing it like i think there are sometimes podcasts where they are like in the top 10 of itunes like there's like a podcast i don't know if you're familiar with it it's it's called like call her daddy and they're like talking about like nonsense girl stuff and they went like to to the first place of itunes within six months or something like Sometimes there are those freakish stories where someone becomes like very, very famous or successful in a shorter period of time. But I think like if you want to create content online, like, man, like I'm doing this for 50 months. And I, before I first got into this, my mindset was like probably it would take five years, 10 years or 15 years to be somebody. So I think it's really about like thinking long term. I think it is. And I think also being innovative, you've got, you've, you've got to stand out from the crowd somehow. And, and uh, yeah. you know, in your business, probably have to have your eyes on, on all the latest technology because you don't want to be really successful on the technology that nobody's, that everyone stops using <laughs> and yeah. moves on, then moves on to the next one. You know, what's, what's, what's the next fad? It's, it's, it's a difficult time. I want to pick up on something, on something that you said there because it, because the longevity is, is important, but times have changed dramatically. So we're in a, we're in a, a, a you know, I, I'm calling this the great transformational age of disruption because all the old systems, all the old energy, this kind of male, linear, step-by-step energy is changing. And so a lot, you know, you're seeing so many of the old style um, companies crumble away and, and with mm-hmm. their systems too. And we're moving to a much faster energy, a swirling energy. So you get different different um, structures of company that, that don't ha- no longer have the hierarchical filter of communication. So so the old ones, they're, they can't, they're, they're not able to make a decision quickly enough. So when technology changes, they get put out of business very quickly. The new one has to be really adaptive. It has to be whatever business you're in, you've got to be you know, right on the cutting edge, knowing what's coming next and be able to change, switch, you know, your plan, your customer, or, you know, in, in an instant. Um, 
back in the 50s, the average age of a company was 75 years. Well, today, the average age of a company is only 20 years. And I think in the next decade, you're going to see the average age of a company, no matter what it is, really be really short, you know, be five, six, seven years. It'll either get taken out by new technology or better services, or it'll be bought by somebody who's got, you know, wants it to, for whatever reason, strategic buyout or whatever. And so because of that, the entrepreneur's mentality has, has had to switch along with it. And that's mm-hmm. the, my, the book Seekers to a Successful Startup has a, has a lot about the mentality, the need to change the way you think as an entrepreneur. It's no longer, or, or, or any kind of, of business, but whatever kind of business you're in, it's no longer enough to do, the, to do things the way you did them before. Mm-hmm. And so you won't get 15 years to build your platform anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Because within 15 years, there'll be so many different ways of communicating that we haven't even imagined yet. Um, but that's what happens when you get this swirling energy that we're moving into now. And and so I'm I'm you know aware of this. And so as I'm thinking about investments, I'm very careful about the type of company I'm, I'm investing in in the future now because I, I want a CEO um, who's really adaptive, who's, who's who can really um, make intuitive decisions. And that is tending to push me. And it's not a gender conversation, but it's tending me to tending to push me towards female-led companies and female entrepreneurs. And so I've done a lot of study about. Um, you know, what sort of companies are successful and what sort of entrepreneurs are successful. And, you know, in, in my books and in my courses, the, the, the results of that research are in there. Um, companies that are female-led or female entrepreneurs, even if it's a single entrepreneur, make 66% more profit than male-led companies in today's world. And that's only going to continue to change. And, and, and why? Why is that so? I think because they have this, they have more confidence in their, their ability to make intuitive decisions. They also mm. make better negotiators in the world we live in now. In the old world, it was, you know, sit around a table and, and beat egos across the table. Okay? <laughs> Can't do that anymore. Can't do that. You've got, to, you've got to make compromising negotiations in order to continue. Because yeah. you could spend so much time locked down in, in negotiations that while you're all doing that, somebody else comes in with a, a, a better widget and takes you out of the business altogether. So, so I, I find that that's the way the world is moving. It's really interesting. And I'm excited by it. It's keeping me young. Yeah, I've, I've got to completely change the way I think in order to be to continue to be successful. And I, and I think this is like a big fallacy of, uh, for instance, a lot of online gurus, because um, a lot of people that are teaching young entrepreneurs, like how to build a business, they're either in the camp of, okay, it's all about thinking long term. You have to think in a five year, 10 year, 15 year period, or they're all about, okay, it's all about getting revenue in. It's all about like making sales. It's all about like thinking short term or like doing something today. And I think they both miss the point because I, what I can clearly see in my own life, um, not seeing through someone else's eyes, what I can see in my own life is that it's really about like thinking short term and long term. Like I have to do, I have to make money today to pay my rent, to go on vacation, to like, I don't have a girlfriend, uh, but to go on certain dates or something, like I have to make money now, but I also have to think long term. So I think it's not really about like choosing either side, like thinking short term or like, only about like making money now or it's either about like only thinking about the long term i think it's really important for everyone who is listening to this to think about like okay the short term and the long term yeah i I agree i agree with you but uh you know life is what happens to you when you're busy planning so you have to be really careful (laughs) um you know the the, for me you know my my my, you know you were talking before if you met a guy in in the gym or something and they want all your advice you give a thing yeah mine is always just do it don't wait do it now (laughs) just jump just jump and you'll figure it out 
you'll figure it out. But if you spend all, if you spend all your time planning what it's going to look like in the short term and then how you yeah, do okay. I, I mean, it's different styles, I guess. But but, yeah. but for me, for me, the best thing I, I ever did was just jump. You know, just start yeah. and and figure it out. And I, I had a I, there was a, a guy who was in his seventies who was the chairman of a company I worked for. His name was um, um, George Rothman. And uh, he built Amgen, which is one of the world's biggest biotech companies, up to $60 billion. So, he, you know, I, I hung on to every word he said, but he's kind of sat in the back of the boardrooms at the company I was working at at the time. And, and people ignored him because he was in his 70s, right? And so he'd say something and, you know, the young guys around the table, a girl, male and females around the table, just, you know, ignored it. But I picked up on everything he said. And one of the things he so one night I was actually having dinner with him and I was waxing lyrical about my business plan my short term, mm-hmm. my long term and all the rest of it, you know, yeah. and how brilliant it was going to be. And he put his hand up and he said, Trevor, you don't know what business you're in until you get into the business. Just start. And I didn't yeah, understand how profound that was. And once true. I started, I, I thought I was going in one direction. And of course, because I'm in the business, yeah. I see an opportunity that I would never have known existed. So I, I changed and suddenly I'm going in a different direction. And I think we live more in that type of world now, this world of quick changes and quick switches than, than uh, people realize. And if you try to do if you try to do things in the old way, you know, sit down, talk about it, call a meeting. You can't call a meeting anymore. There's no time. Yeah, you know? I, I totally get where you are coming from, and I think it's like totally true because I think like um, when you first uh, um, like planning or theorizing about your business, you probably won't think about a lot of problems that are coming up until you're in the business. Like, for instance, like before I sold like any marketing services at all, like I would never imagine like how many problems are going to come up like selling the service. And 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 after selling the service, like delivering the service, like how many problems then are developing. So I think like unless you have skin in the game, unless you're actually doing something like, yeah, your planning probably won't get you anywhere. Right. And I tell everyone this, just start, just jump. And the guy I was mentioning before who has the, the prototype product, he came out of, you know, corporate, big corporate America mm-hmm. and he was terrified. And I'd been talking to him on and off for a year through my through my my website and everything and I, that's my that was all the advice i gave him was just jump and i know he was thinking i paid a thousand dollars to hear that you can't you must be kidding me um <laughs> I said, jump 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 and then finally he made the jump okay N- nervous as hell he's in his 50s so nervous as hell and he's finally made the jump he's never had so much fun in all his life some of the time of his life but he's going through what you're describing he's finding out that it's not what he thought it was going to be it's all very yeah. different and you and you have to figure it out as you go but he will he it I can guarantee he will, he has a multi-billion dollar opportunity on it in his lap and he will, you know, he's got the capability to figure that out, I think. I, uh, I, was, exciting. I, I would steal this phrase when someone is asking me for advice on a party or in the gym, I would just say like, man, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right, you have to. You've, and, you've probably saved me like thousands of hours in the future. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, could you please also speak about like the whole like okay, now we've talked about like okay, getting customers, finding customers, um, and so on and so forth. But what did you learn about like building a team, hiring talent, um, scaling your company? Could you please also speak about that? Well, that's why I chose that unique business model. Okay, the model of alliances, because because I. I I didn't want to have to spend time holding employees' hands when I wanted to be out there growing the business. Okay, I wanted to be out there 
focusing on on more customers, more ideas, more products, mm-hmm. etc. And um, and so I found that if I used vendors instead of employees, I got instant expertise. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is that no customer has to be obliged to put up with crappy service just because you're small and starting out. Why should mm-hmm. they? They deserve the best right from the very beginning. And the way to give the best today is to to contract with the best. So so one of the things I would do is I'd go, I'd say, okay, so I know I'm going to need. That's a very time. different approach to most people, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Crazy. No, no, never so, heard it. I, I, you know, I know I'm going to need a, a, a distributor. Okay, so I would go to a conference of distributors. They have their annual meeting somewhere, and so I'd fly. I, I think this one was in Memphis, and I would talk to distributors, and I would, I would get a, I would use my intuition. I've been, I've been working for for almost 40 years to try and get 10% of my wife's intuition, <laughs> <laughs> and I, maybe I've got about six percent, I think. Um, but I'm a man, so I have to work at it. But, but, but I would then use my intuition and say, I like that company. And and then I, another piece of advice I was given a long time ago is is also you know it's it's not about getting the right price it's about getting the right vendor, it's 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 much better to get the even if they're the most expensive it's best to get the best, you'll mm-hmm. soon catch up your money will soon catch up and so I, I was sensible my intuition would say okay they're they're like twice the price of these guys over here but I really can work with these guys and and, and I think they can help me and so I built it that way and so I I would go to where all these people existed and I'd try and cherry pick the one that felt felt right for me. Um, and I, you know, at the beginning, it's hard work. You, you spent six months doing that. But once I got those vendors in, when I sold my first company and started my second company, I just kept all the same vendors. It was like a plug and play model. I didn't Crazy. have to do anything. That's, that's the brilliant. Of it. That's brilliant. And that's why it was, that's what's in the book about how to do that. The secrets to a successful startup. And I think it's just that for most entrepreneurs, they're not yet thinking that way. They're still thinking no. in a more traditional sense. And I, I think once you see that and you think, yeah, this is really interesting, um, a lot of a lot of companies that have already set up and have, they've got their you know VP of this and VP of that and VP. I always say the smaller the company, the bigger the titles of the employees. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, I worked for a 60-person company and they had executive vice president to the corporate, this, that, and the other, you know, yeah. and crazy, crazy stuff. Um, so, so when entrepreneurs see that they've gone the old traditional way, it's quite easy to unhinge it and go and 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 start to do a quasi virtual model and, and so mm-hmm. so kind of kind of change it. it takes takes a little time you have to do it gently but I, I coach a number of companies into doing that and the benefit of it there's twofold benefit one is it frees you up as an entrepreneur to focus on what you enjoy which is building businesses and number two it's so much more profitable as a business model my wow. net profits is a 76 percent because because i can i can ratchet up to match demand and i can pull back in times when demand is not so great, so I could so so my net profits are really high, and that that makes my companies attractive to other companies and other investors because they love those numbers. And and what are because um, I have no experience doing those kind of things, and I think most listeners uh, don't as well. So um, what are the downsides to to doing that? Uh, like like you do, uh, basically like looking for vendors or working with vendors. Like, what is the downside to that? I haven't been able to find the downsides, but as we mentioned, <laughs> Come <the> thing, on. <laughs> I think as we mentioned at the beginning, at a certain level, at a certain size, or a certain um, uh, part of the progress in your idea and your company, it no longer is as efficient and it's no longer as profitable. And at okay. that point, you have to go back to a more traditional approach. But it's going to, you know, at some point, if I was to hold on to the company. I probably would eventually unravel the model of alliances and, and it would make more economic sense to have my own people. Do you have like a concrete example for us? 
Um, when I saw my, my first company is a, is a really good uh, sort of uh, case in point. I, I, I talk about it a lot. So so it was called Quality of Life Medical. And now, uh, so it was totally virtual. Mm. So I'm, I'm the only guy in it. The only, and I'm like a conductor uh, rather than a rather than um, uh, an employer or a manager. I was more like a conductor of an orchestra. I can't play any of the instruments as well as the people I'm conducting, but I can conduct a handful of people. That's, that's the secret to being an entrepreneur, a CEO, is being able to manage a handful of people. That's it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else to it. And, um, you know, good CEOs, when they're doing the traditional structure, hire good wingmen. Yeah. Yeah. You know? and, and so I had these great vendors. So I know, you know, they don't, they don't need a lot of supervision. In fact, they don't like supervision. They're like, so the best thing I can do is to um, set it up and then get the hell out of everybody's way. I know it sounds crazy. The first, the first year, the first year, um, first year that I did that, I went. I, I decided to with with Lynn. We were with obviously from England, so we're going to go see family in England. Haven't seen them for a couple of years, and I was terrified of leaving my desk and going to England for three weeks. And um, and I did, and my phone didn't work very well over there. And so I was when I came back, I expected chaos to ensue. Not one person had noticed I'd gone. No, not <laughs> and so the so the, the the business runs itself to a certain point of time but what but when it gets to a certain size um that's when you start to break you know that's maybe when you change the structure a bit when i sold my first company what kind of size are we talking about like eight figures nine figures uh, I, I, I sold my first company for 107 105.5 million i started it with 200 dollars in 2001 <laughs> and i sold it in 2000 2009 for 105.5 million i did a two a double deal i sold one product on its own for 57 million and then the rest of the company for the remainder uh, to another person and that's what i'm going to say so the guy that bought the rest of the company within two years he'd hired 38 people 38 employees mm-hmm. and i met him at a conference and i said um but what about net profits now he says oh we're down to about 50 percent and I said, but it was 76% and it was working like a dream. He said, ah, oh, you just got lucky. It shouldn't have worked. Okay. So I've just got lucky for the fifth time. Okay. I'm on my fourth, <laughs> fifth, fifth company. Yeah. True. So got it. I, just, I, I just plugged and played the whole time. I'm, this company I'm working on now is, you know, I mean, this is a billion dollar company when, when, when it gets to the level where I'm ready to let go. Um, and, it's just, and, and I'm using all the same vendors I used right from the very beginning. And, and 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 what do you think like for instance like what would you say to everyone who's listening to this right now uh, on finding the right vendors because I think nowadays there's so many hustlers out there so many bullshitters so so how to how to make sure that you're working with the right people like yeah well definitely you know definitely intuition is key these days to making decisions is uh, if, if we make decisions by analysis the more likely to be wrong I think these days um, so Why? also um, you end up with a thing, you know, you end up with paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to remind, you have to remind yourself that, that when you're starting out, you, I might think I'm the most important per- person in the world and I might think I'm the best entrepreneur in the world and therefore they should be paying attention to me. But if I, if I bog them down in wordsmithing a contract, they'll just walk away. And I've had that happen with, with you know, I've, I've worked with people in the regular career who, who we were offered five million dollars for the rights to the, the the patent rights to a product we weren't even working on and my ceo my, my boss insisted that i tried to get more money out of it and i said but it's that was amgen so amgen's offering five million i mean amgen's not going to 
spend any time with us. But I had to do what I was told. So I, I went back and said, look, we're interested, but such and such. Never heard from them again. And and, and, th- and that company went out of business. So the company I was working for imploded uh, 18 months later. I'd already left and started my company, but uh, it imploded. And that five million would have kept it going for probably another three or four years. So you have to use right, a bit yeah. of common sense to say, okay, I can spend I can spend a long time negotiating all the different aspects of this marketing mm. contract or whatever. Or I can just say they feel right to me. And and typically the I vendors that, the vendors I'm using typically have I don't know twenty or thirty other clients, mm. so I I'm not going to be stupid to think okay they've never done a contract before you know I'm going to have to wordsmith their contract that contract has been has had an army of lawyers at it so I'll I will say to them give me your latest contract redact the name of the company and I'll take a look at that and I I sign the contracts in in minutes. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to, so, you know, I, don't, I, I do some due diligence, but typically I know who they are anyway because I've been in the business for a while. Um, yeah. But my, my intuition says, you know, they're good. Let's get it done. I don't I don't want to piss them off at this point in time that they never come back. You know, I, yeah. I want to yeah. use a bit of common sense and a bit of intuition. Um, and, it, you know, as you know, common sense is not very common. So. Not at all. But I really, really love your approach because I think um, a lot of entrepreneurs think think it's about like following the made up roots by society or gurus or um, what have you. But um, I think like I don't want to be like too, too philosophical right now, but I think like entrepreneurship at the end of the day is like an art form. Like you can make whatever you want out of your company. Like you don't have to follow the rules or the structures that someone else gave you like you can do things completely different and what i've also noticed is that there's there are like so so many upsides to doing things like differently not just because you want to do them differently but because you 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 really feel like this is like doing uh, this is like the right choice for instance like um at first i was like selling the stuff that everyone else is selling like seo um social media stuff and so on and so forth and it worked but i always felt like okay i have this ability to be able to get like amazing guests on the podcast that like most people won't probably get on their podcast and um i know how to connect with others and that's when i when i thought about okay maybe i should help successful like people get on great shows and when i started this new service like my business just exploded because like i wasn't like following the crowd and the common sayings that oh you have to do this you have to do that so i think like um Yeah, thinking for yourself, following your intuition is like very, 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 very important because I think like most people, they are just following advice of others without like thinking for themselves. So, yeah, I totally agree with everything you said. And I think you're quite the, the more successful businesses tend to swim against the current a little bit, the, the current of common thinking. And, and I think because I, I think of it more, I think of it, I, I am philosophical, I think of it as a, as a magical process. You know, the definition of magic is converting one form of energy into another form of energy within the laws of nature with the power of will. And for me, that that's how companies, you, know, you have an idea, it doesn't exist, you turn it into a real thing, you convert that energy into a real thing and then say goodbye to it, let somebody else take it on, go do it again. And mm. that's a magic, that's a, that's a you know, that's an... A process of alchemy and I, I love that aspect about it and 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 and, and i also think um because you you've mentioned uh intuition like a, a couple of times now um i also think that for instance when it comes down to stuff like sales or marketing i think it's also an art form and it's really about intuition i think like 
you can wait like sorry for everyone who is listening to this but you can like buy all the courses you can read all the books you can listen to all the podcasts even <laughs> and um yeah it, it will probably there are definitely pieces of advice that are going to make a difference in your life but um i think it's also like uh, a lot about talent and a lot about like a few guys have like great intuition they have like great listening skills and that's just their edge if this makes sense because i think a lot of people um buy into the message of like everyone can become the best salesman like everyone can be like elon musk or jeff bezos and i think this isn't really the case like um yeah no you but you don't want to be like anybody else you want to be like you okay so so, so you want to create, <laughs> create your own i mean that, how boring would it be to try and copy someone else um, and that's so I agree with it with on the marketing and sales side uh, intuition plays a huge part because uh, you know sometimes you just know I, I've been in the you yeah. know in the corporate world where you know I've, I've I've wasted weeks of my life trying to crack a tagline for a for a, you know brochure or something like that and and the one and, and then everybody gets agreement except for one person and one person is typ was typically the, a female in in the room I work for a couple of really macho type of companies where they're <laughs> token female. Um, and a token foreigner, like me, and uh, and and she would say, "I know, I know, it all makes sense, but it doesn't feel right." And the corporate world completely bulldozes the. <laughs> they don't see that as intuition and insight; they see that as dissension, and they they you know they bulldoze it away. Whereas when you're in your own company, you know sometimes things just feel right, and you have to yeah. go with, just go with it. And that is the art form, I think. And 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 do you think that people can develop that sense of intuition? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, the other side of my business, of my life, which is, you know, the course is transformation and seekers to a successful startup in the book. That's about, it's all about that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's all about putting yourself in a position to have moments of insight. And, um, and, and, you, ha and you can't do that if you sat at your desk 15 hours a day, okay? Your brain doesn't, you know, it's scientifically proven that the brain can't concentrate for more than two hours. It's also scientifically proven that in the typical corporate workspace, the mo um, the average amount of product productive time is two hours, 53 minutes. And mm. the rest of the time, people are doing other things. And there's nothing wrong with doing other things. We need those other things to keep sane, keep us focused and keep us working at peak performance. But when you're working by yourself or in a small company, there's a, there's a tendency to sit in front of your computer waiting for an email or, or waiting for the phone yeah. to ring, you know. Yeah. And you feel guilty I can if you're not cracking it all the time. Don't you, don't you feel guilty if you're not working every second that you've got because you want to succeed and, you you know, you – I, when I first started, I thought, oh, I must be doing something wrong. The phone's not mm. ringing. And then I made, I'd, I'd pick the phone up and I'd call a vendor and say, just checking to see how things are going. You know, a right pain in the ass I was. And then I learned, you know what? The secret is uh, dedicate two hours of my time here and then go for a walk. And it was really interesting that in once I got out into nature by myself, no devices, just walk, just be amongst nature, magic happens, and you get all those aha moments. And the number of times I smacked myself in the forehead because I just spent two or three hours trying to crack this problem, and mm -hmm. it was cracked for me in a nanosecond by nature, by magic. Um, and so that, I teach a lot of that. It's very important the way you structure your day when you're an entrepreneur. You've got to use nature and all the power of nature because, you know, it, it fires us, it fuels us. And um, those people who've taken that message to heart and mm -hmm. have, have started to introduce meditation every morning and then going out into nature you know at least twice a day by themselves to take go for a 30 minute walk somewhere you don't have to be in a forest or on top of a, a summit of mount everest or something to be in nature you just go outside and get some fresh air and look you know 
notice a, a leaf or a tree or something like that or a bird and the, in that moment you connect and it, it sounds very new agey okay it's mm. actually it's actually quantum physics I'm a, I'm a physicist by trade so it's actually um or by education i should say so it you know we now know there's a thing that exists that, that glues everything in the world together it's called the higgs field i don't know if you've heard of it no Hardy, okay please, so yeah so, so, so we're all made up of the same stuff, right? We're all made up of twelve particles and four forces of nature, and, and how it, that's jumbled together determines whether I'm Trevor Blake or you're Hardy, and and, mm. and this, this mug is was a mug of tea, okay? Just the the, the vibration of it, and the convolution of it. Until very recently, until 2012, the thought was that there's empty space in between all of that. Now mm. we know that there's no such thing as empty space. It's all connected to a type of cosmic glue. And that cosmic glue slows us all down, slows our particles down. And in slowing us down, we get to experience matter and solidity. And that gives us our lives and our experiences. Once you know that, once you have that understanding, and this is in um, my course, Transformation, but once you have that understanding, then it changes the way you think and approach life when you go out for your walk in nature, because you realize that you're walking through this cosmic glue. And therefore, you have the ability to connect with anyone, anywhere, anywhere in the world, anywhere back in time, and anywhere in the future. Because it's all connected by this sort of this Higgs field, this this uh, new particle that's been discovered, and and so and so once you once you start to think that way, all kinds of magic happens. You open yourself up to new ideas that maybe maybe have come out of someone else's brain, come across the Higgs field and gone into your brain. And then I like to think visually like that. That it's that it is that simple. It sounds complicated and 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 um, uh, you know quantum physicsy, but it, but it's really, it's just very very simple. So once you, so I, I've got some tools and techniques to help people get to that level where they can say, okay, I need to solve this problem. I'm going to go and get help from the universe. Mm. Sounds new agey. I mean, I should be wearing a a, a tie dye t shirt or something <laughs> like that, but it's not. It's scientific. I'm a scientist, and I need and I need it, facts and proof. You know. And and and, and uh, I totally get where you are coming from because I think like, I think it's so stupid that most of us think that if we are like constantly working, constantly being stressed out, constantly being in meetings, that we get like good ideas. I think like everyone who took a shower in the morning knows that. Okay, if you are like chilled and um yeah you probably have like better ideas than when you're like constantly working and constantly focusing on other things and i think what's really 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 important to realize for everyone who is listening to this especially in their 20s is that um we live in an age with so much leverage so much leverage to code media uh, podcasts youtube videos blog posts advertising uh, facebook ads instagram ads and what's really important to realize is that like making the right decisions can really amplify your success like for instance there could be like one guy uh, coding something for 14 hours a day for two years and it never gets like used the code because the code is bad and there could be like one guy like working on something like for 10 hours per week for six months and this guy makes billions so like making the right decision uh, decisions is like way 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 more important than like being like working all the time and i think like working all the time is like really a false premise for young people because like the gurus are telling us that if you work hard like you will get rich or you will become successful but i think this is like total nonsense i know so many guys that are like in their 30s or 40s they have like their financials are like totally like shit like um like i can clearly see with my own eyes that like only working only being stressed out all the time like 
can also get you nowhere. So um, I think this is like really a false premise that society is giving us young people, um, like work hard and you will get there. I think this isn't the case at all. Like uh, I would rather choose someone who is smart and is working like one hour a day, but he's like the best designer, the best engineer, the best salesman, what have you, than someone who is like, mediocre or shitty and works like 12 hours a day i think it's not at all about like being stressed out and working all the time i could i mean i couldn't say it better myself it's a you know i know people who work 14 hours a day and they are reasonably successful but they're on the third marriage they're taking antidepressants <laughs> and the dogs don't know who they are you know so it, it's a question of success and balance really so you know, I work five hours a day and I, I, you know, a lot of your listeners might be saying, yeah, but that's okay for, for the Trevor Blakes of the world. He's up there in his years now, but I bet he had to work hard to get there. Uh, Let me tell you the absolute truth. Okay. That's the first time I've revealed this to the public. When I was in a regular career, I only worked five hours a day, but I had to cheat <laughs> and hide that information from my bosses. Okay. So, so in the Navy, I did shifts. I did four hour shifts. And when I was in the hospital, I did four hour shifts. Um, when I, when I became a regular work person and I was a sales rep, supposed to be out there from eight in the morning to seven at night doing whatever I had to do. I only worked five hours. And because I found I, I was useless after two hours, so I'd, I'd, go and, I'd go and talk to customers for two hours. Then I'd go and sit in the, I was, this is in Liverpool, I'd go and sit in the Anglican Cathedral in, in Liverpool city centre and just sit at the back, on, the, on a, not for religious reasons, just for the peace yeah. and quiet. And I, sometimes I'd doze off and all the rest of it, and then I'd, I'd feel, <laughs> feel re-energised and I'd go back out again. And I, know, I could never admit that to my bosses because they would have fired me, right, instantly. But you know what? I won every sales award that was up, that was available. When I became, I got promoted to sales manager after 18 months. I got regional manager a year later, national sales manager about two years after that. Every team I put together, they won every single prize because I taught them the same thing. And so they, when I would go out with them and ride with them, they would they would you know try and pretend that they worked really hard. And I would say, let's stop this crap right now, okay? You, you, you're not, you, you look tired, you sound tired, it's not working. So we're going to work two hours, and then we're going to go find the pub, we'll have a couple of drinks and we'll relax, and then we'll go back out and work another couple of hours. I've always worked that way, and I was a young guy then. So, so with your younger listeners, you know, yeah. it, 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 I'm not, not, I'm not telling you to cheat on your boss or your company, but you have to think about yeah. peak brain power. It's, it's scientifically proven that, that um, you know, if you, if, you, if you structure your day into dedicated work periods and dedicated relaxation periods, you will achieve success. It's the, yeah. Like you say, it's the opposite of what people think. Totally the opposite. And uh, I can definitely, like, verify, like, for instance, because I've done, like, uh, 300 episodes on the English podcast, I have another German one, where I've done, like, 50 episodes, and I'm only doing this for 15 months, and I'm also, like, running the digital agency here in Germany with my younger brother, and people are thinking, like, man, this guy is working, like, 80 hours or something, and I, I, I always have to lie up, because I'm, I'm, I'm really lazy, to be honest. Like, I'm probably working, like, 20 hours per week or something. Like, I'm doing the podcast, like, five times per week, like, for an hour or two tops. And um, then I'm, like, doing, like, mostly, like, okay, sales and marketing for an hour or two in the morning. And that's basically it. Like, everything else, like, are doing our employees. Like, we have processes for everything in place. Um, we are automizing autom autom uh, a lot of things. Like, I don't really have to do a lot. Like, obviously, we are not at, like, at nine figures or something. But I can clearly see, like, there's a great trend. We are, we're heading towards the right direction. So, um, yeah, I think, like, 
it's really, really, I know so, so many people are working way harder than me, but they're also like focusing on the wrong things. They're like doing everything themselves. Like I could be like working on the website or doing thumbnails or like the, the, the video editing or audio editing or stuff, but I'm just outsourcing it. Like I think like people are like just working on the right, uh, on the wrong things. And they also have this mindset that like, this is great that they are working. Like, I think they should be probably ashamed that they're working so much. I, I don't know where this is coming from, that you have, like, some sorts of bragging rights because you're working so hard. Like, I think it's really silly, to be honest, because um, I think, like, mostly it's really about, like, status signaling. Like, people, they want to look cool. Like, they want to say, like, oh, yeah, I'm working hard. And they want to, like, get the clap on the back or something. And I think, like why i i'm I, I want to learn like how to make money or how to scale my business and, and and not work 80 hours per week or 60 hours per week and i think also like most people who are working 80 hours or 60 hours it's mostly bullshit they're refreshing their emails a thousand times a day they're like i don't know shoveling papers around their table like they aren't like doing anything that moves the needle like they're just wasting time so uh yeah well you know i'm it sounds like self-promotion, but it's not because all my stuff goes to cancer research <laughs> development. Um, on my website, so so trevorgblake.com, it's that simple, yeah. just my name, trevorgblake.com. There's a there's a no strings attached download, and it's called the Practical Magic of the Five Hour Workday, and mm-hmm. I made it available to, to everybody because people don't understand what you what you've been talking about, and one of the reasons, and I explain this in there, is, is about thirty pages, I think, and and I explain in there how life was before the industrial revolution how life changed in the Industrial Revolution and how we live in an era where we can go back to how it was before the Industrial Revolution. And people would say, but didn't they work all the hours God sends? Wasn't it wasn't it all this poverty? Mm-hmm. And the truth is it wasn't like that. Before the Industrial Revolution, the average worker worked four and a half hours a day and they got 173 days of, of, of uh, paid vacation a year. That's before 1740. And so we have this opportunity and that's success and balance. Okay, so they got everything right. They got family, spirit whatever they're or church in those days so family church leisure work work was always number four now today it's work and everything yeah. else is shoved aside and so um you know and particularly in america because the work ethic in america is so strong I, it shocked me when i came over from the uk the first time because in the uk you know we worked monday to friday in order to afford our weekend our leisure mm-hmm. whereas in america they own you and so I was finding myself traveling and having to go into meetings at weekends and stuff like that. And very, very unpalatable for my, for my thing. So I had to be very creative with my five hour day when I worked in America, but I'm pretty creative. So. And, and, and I also think um, another fallacy that a lot of people have is that they think like work is something linear. I think, for instance, if you're in a creative job, like, for instance, uh, say it's marketing or you are a designer or you are like writing novels or something like probably the work that you're putting out at the 10 hour mark or five hour or six hour mark isn't probably the the same quality as the work that you've done in the first hour. So I think like a lot of people think that if I just put like twice the time in, I get like twice the results. And this is completely wrong. 
completely wrong, I think. I, I totally, I totally, I've experienced that too because one of my hobbies is writing screenplays. I don't know cool. if, you, if you knew that. Um, so I've had a couple of successes Very back cool. in the 90s, which was just fun, uh, fun. But I've, I used to experience that because I, I would go into like a zone and I'd do a couple of hours writing and I'd just think, oh, it's, this is going great. And I would, well, I wasn't smart enough then to stop. And I would just keep yeah. going, keep going, keep going. Then the next day I'd go back in and I'd read what I'd done. And that first two hours was pretty good. And then everything after that, I ended up throwing it away, just throwing it in the in the trash can because it was it was pretty rubbish. So I, I changed my style. I find that find writing screenplays is very relaxing for me. I think it's good to have a balance of art and science and all that kind of stuff. So I, I used to fly a lot. So, so most flights here are sort of two to three hours. And so I'd write during the two to three hours instead of, you know, cracking on at work, which I saw everybody else doing mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or staring at the window. I, I would use that time to sort of write a screenplay. And I found that when I when I landed and had to work, how my mind was so much fresh, so much so much stronger um, than if I'd yeah. spent the whole time preparing or something like that. So it, it, it's absolutely true from an artistic standpoint, you know, because I totally. think we get, we get into the zone and fool ourselves into thinking that that's productive. Yeah. So, so uh, I've mentioned this also like a couple of times on my show already, like uh, before becoming an entrepreneur, like um, I, I also published, uh, self-published through Amazon, like two German novels, uh, so a pen name. And um, but 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 I also noticed that, um, yeah, like you can sit on your desk for four hours and you will get nothing done or the work is terrible. And um, yeah, it's not really about the hours. It's like, I don't know where the magic is coming from. Like I I, I haven't like uh, reverse engineered the process, but um, I think like, yeah, it's not linear at all. Like you shouldn't probably view work like that. And um, yeah, I think it's also like very different for specific people. I think there are people, I know for a fact, people who are great writers and they say they only can write in the evening. And um, so, but most I know they say, they, they swear that they, 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 they're starting in the morning. But, but I think um, it's also really important to know like when are you functioning at your best? Because I think this is also like very different for, for everyone because I see this huge trend where everyone is talking about like waking up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. or I don't know the silliness. Like, uh, to be honest, like I think there are quite probably a few people that should be like waking up at 4 or 5 a.m. and then working on like sales, marketing, writing the book or something. But I think like most people probably shouldn't work up, uh, wake up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. So um, I have yeah. no idea what 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. are. So I can't <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen them in my life. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um could you please share with us, like, what does your day look like? Like your five hours, like, what are you like actually doing in your companies? Like, what are the things that you are working on that um, really move the needle? Okay. And uh, actually, my uh, my daily schedule is in that freebie on the website. So I cool. actually, you know, because I think it's very, it's important to be authentic. So I'll show exactly this is, this is how my day. So it's very important. So there's key things to it. And one is you've got to have absolutely discipline to stick to the schedule. And that means treating the downsides with the same reverence that you would treat the work periods. You, you, you can't mm-hmm. say, oh, this is going well, I'll just go a little bit further, you've got to stop. If, if you're on the phone call, you've got to say, sorry, I've got another th- meeting I have to go to, but that meeting is with nature, not not with mm-hmm. a person. So you, you've, got to, you've got to have that discipline. So I talk about task discipline and schedule discipline as well. Um, and so 
one of the key things for me is is most people I know jump out of bed and immediately check their texts or their WhatsApp mm-hmm. or their emails and stuff like that. My, so I have separate devices for the office and separate di- devices for leisure. Really important mm-hmm. to split the two open because I don't want to be disturbed at night with work calls and I don't want to be disturbed during my work periods with with, with personal calls. Mm-hmm. Because you know if, if, if I was to get a text from my wife, I would immediately think something's wrong. So I'd stop doing what I was doing and I'd check the w- thing and she's probably saying, hey, check out this meme or something. And then I've lost the focus of the work. Okay, and I've, I've, it's hard to get it back. Scientifically, it shows it's really hard to get that focus back. So the discipline is really important. So separate devices for the office, separate devices for life. Um, I get up, I meditate. I make a cup of tea, take it to my wife, and she opens one eye and says, oh, is it that time already? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I go out, and then, and then I take my dog, uh, my animals right now, I've just got the one dog, but typically I have more, and I, I take them for a walk in nature. And no devices, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't start work until exactly nine o'clock. Now, I work from home, so for me, my my commute is just a few yards. But but uh, <laughs> when I open my office, I go to my task board that I wrote out five o'clock the previous night. And, and I do start to interrupt. Um, have you yeah. always worked from home, or um, did you had like at one point an office and um, yeah? I've worked in an office environment too, okay. and, and mm-hmm. I, I I found it. I found I, w- I was pretty much, people thought I was very direct and a little aloof and a little antisocial, but that's because I was, I wanted to get work done. And mm-hmm. so, so I refused to go to certain meetings and uh, that obviously made me a bit of a target for, for, for the people who were, who thought corporate politics was more important than productivity. So, mm-hmm. so I have, expe- I have experienced both sides, both sides of it. I don't like the corporate world. I have to, have to say, I find that most, most of it's bullshit. And, and and I was very good at the bullshit. I could sit around the table and bullshit better than anybody. It's probably why I, probably why I had a good career, you know. Um, so so I get into my office at nine o'clock, and I have I have this list of priorities, and I do the first one, whatever it is, whatever that first priority is, I do that task, and only when that task is completed do I allow myself to check email, switch on my devices, and I do that deliberately because if I did it the other way around, I would immediately be drawn into what looks like an important email or what looks like an important. No, Yeah, so so I do the first task that way I know that I'm on track. Okay, then I do my emails and all that sort of thing, and then I go down as far as I can get down that list for two hours. So I work from nine to eleven. At eleven o'clock, I take myself off to go and communicate with nature. I take myself for a, an hour walk, and um, uh, get all those magical ideas. I'm back at twelve. I go to lunch with my wife between twelve and two. Okay, so all I've done so far is two hours work. Then I come back to my office and I work between two and four. At four o'clock, I make myself take a nap for 20 minutes. It's scientifically proven to improve brain power by 34%. Uh, NASA makes all their pilots take a nap in the afternoon. Then um, or then? Yeah, it's, it's all scientific. It's all, it's all it's how, how to stay, you know, peak performance. You can't you can't build five successful companies in, in you know, 16, 17 years without having some kind of uh, formula. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You this definitely is my, this have is, one, I would say. This is my formula. <laughs> so, so I stop yeah. work at, at, at four, have my nap, and then after my nap, um, that's you've mentioned before that you know writers who feel they write best in the evenings. I, I, I do all my articles and things for, for this side of my life, which is you know promoting my books and my courses and, and, and doing, doing the webinars with other experts that, that we're doing at the moment. I do all the writing for that between, say, quarter to five and about quarter to quarter to seven in the kitchen. Mm-hmm whilst preparing dinner with my wife we we always cool. uh, we love to cook so we, we cook from scratch and we're always together in the kitchen and then we always dine together 
Um, and then we usually eat about seven and there's absolutely no way that I can be disturbed by work between the hours of seven in the evening and nine o'clock the following morning. And, you know, most people would say, oh, that's impossible because I, my, my boss is going to call me at eight tonight and all this kind of thing. It requires tremendous self-discipline to pull off a schedule like that. But the benefits are multiple. The benefits are you peak brain performance, you'll, you'll, you'll be more successful than you can ever imagine in your, in your wildest imagination. You'll have a balanced life. I've been, I've been married to Lynn, I've, no, I've known her 40 years. So we've been happily married 36 years now. Mm-hmm. And that's unusual. I know that's not a, as a result of, of my work structure, but my work structure certainly has helped that. Because yeah, no point, totally. no point in our totally. married life has Lynn felt that work was more important than her, you know. Mm. And, and she's also, she at no, at no point in in my my business life does she think it's appropriate to come in and chat in my office just because I happen to be working from home. She knows I'm at work, so we have this kind mm-hmm. of understanding. She just walked past the window, actually didn't even look in. So, mm. <laughs> so, so, uh, so she knows that I'm, she thinks I'm working right now. She has no idea that I'm having fun. Um, <laughs> she, so, so she knows to keep walking. She's not going to. She's not even going to pop her head in and say how's it going. You know. So, so very, very strict, very strict uh, discipline and schedule, and it, it works beautifully because I'm, I, I find that I'm also then able to spend time on my hobbies like we're talking about writing but i also have mm. an animal rescue program so i like to like, spend time on that and i never allow work to interfere at the weekends under any circumstances i i i really really love your approach because um i was just thinking about um that people have this uh because we were like previously talking about like people thinking okay work is linear and hard work will get you there and i think like it's really important for everyone who is listening to this to realize that if you are believing in those falsehoods or in those lies, like those things have real consequences. They have like real consequences in your life. You are probably wasting thousands of hours in the future doing things you probably shouldn't be doing. You're probably losing relationships you probably would have never lost if you didn't buy into the, those lies. And um, you, will, you will suffer from, from those beliefs so i think like um listening to guys like you is like very very important for for our listeners that are in my age because um yeah i think like i i know guys in my age like for instance like i have a friend who is like in the corporate world and he's like really making a killing like driving the most expenses bmw and stuff and um and 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 he's like working all the time always stressed out and he yeah his girlfriend broke up with him so uh there you go like <laughs> those things happen in your 20s as well so uh yeah yeah but it, you know it's, it's not an either or okay it's not i, I don't think they're mutually exclusive yeah. you can have the best time in your life you can be totally sure. relaxed and you can work five hours a day, and you can have the best BMW as well. And and yeah. or in my, in my case, Aston Martin, and uh, you know, whatever your whatever your thing is, even you know? better. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 because you 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 were talking about like energy and quote unquote like metaphysics or spiritual stuff, and 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 you've called yourself like being philosophical. Like, could you also speak like in the last like 20, 30 minutes of this interview, um, speak about that side of your life? Well, I, I picked it up when I was when I was young, and um, uh, what happened was I was I was I was I'm English, but um, 
um, we were evicted from our, our we had a we lived in a flat above a shop and we were we were evicted as a family when I was about seven and in those days you could escape to the country to hide from the bailiffs and the creditors and so that's what we did we escaped to an old farmhouse but it was at a time when the English weren't very popular where I moved to Wales the principality of Wales and the English weren't very popular back then because they were buying up vacation homes and so there was a big movement for home rule for Wales was the movement and they were setting fire to to English people's houses and cottages and uh, and so they didn't you know the bullies of the, of the time didn't stop to think well he's actually the poorest guy in the village they just saw an English guy and uh, let's let's torch the English guy and so I, I so I, I suffered from a type of sectarian bullying I suppose at the time so I used to hide in the in the town library because they would they were thick as two short planks they weren't going to go in the library anyway and I would I would go to the back of the library where there was a reference section and while I was kind of hiding out there I started reading and I, I read all kinds of biographies. There was just one shelf of biographies. I, at 14 years old, I would never have read a biography, but I just started reading them. And I was blown away. And they were adventurers, pioneers, uh, business people, musicians, all across the, the, the gamut. And I noticed these patterns of behavior. They all had the same patterns of behavior. Depending on the time, they called it something different. Like John Ford used to meditate, but he didn't call it meditation. He, he called it just going back to his old farmhouse where he grew up and sitting in a rocking chair and just staring at nature for 20, 30 minutes. And that's where all his great ideas came from. And I saw this pattern of behavior. Madam C.J. Walker, you know, uh, born to born to slaves, just uh, just uh, just during the abolition period. But, but the life of the slaves after abolition was worse than it was before, you know, because of the restrictions. And so she would try to get out away from that and she would sit in a tree. And she would meditate for 20 minutes sitting in a tree. And then she, she became America's first ever female millionaire. Brilliant, wonderful, brilliant story. One of my, one of my uh, heroes. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so I noticed these patterns of behavior. So I just started doing that. So, so I learned very early on to meditate. Why not? Mm. If it worked for them, it might work for me. And I might get out of this horrible situation. I might be able to make something in my life. And then the other thing, one of the other patterns of behavior was I noticed people got out in nature, no matter who they were, you know, Andrew Carnegie or any of these people, they, they spent a lot of time. And, and for, for, for their time period, that they that when, when they were success, alive and successful, they spent a long period of time at just just sitting under a tree. Samuel Colt, mm. his, his mother, he, he, was, he was a reckless child, and his mother gave him a, a, an acre and a half to, to sow, uh, so that just to keep him out of trouble. And he fell in love with nature, and she'd find him just sat in the soil just experience of nature. So I decided that, you know, I lived in the countryside then, you know, after we escaped from the creditors. So I decided, okay, I'm going to start doing that. And I really immersed myself in nature. And my life changed, I mean, just not a little bit. It changed absolutely dramatically. I was, I was, I think because of the bullying, probably was not a great student, but I became, you know, number one student without having to do anything else. Didn't I didn't work harder. I didn't study harder. I think my confidence level just went up a little bit because I realized mm. that I wasn't alone and all these other people have managed to get out of their version of quicksand. And that's kind of what I, that's, that's basically it. Um, and so the other thing I learned was the magic of thinking big. So I set really, I call them intentions, but I set these massive goals, these massive intentions that I didn't tell anybody because they would just make fun of me. But I, I basically, you know, and when I, you know, I went from what like scaling a company to a hundred million, was it like also like one of your goals? So yeah, yeah it was smaller? an intention. No, I so so the first thing uh -huh. you were talking before about how do you start a company? I, I wasn't sure we could we would have time to get into this, but the, one of the things I tell people to do is when they have the winning idea and then they incorporate it, they already start to imagine the exit. What does that exit look like? And so when I started my mm -hmm. first company, I imagined it selling for a hundred million. And what did that feel? Like? How did I feel? So so when you do that, I call it mini mini mind movie making. And so when you create this little mini mind movie, 
every time you get knocked back in your company, you replay the movie. And every time someone puts you down, you replay the movie of this outcome. And then what you're doing is squeezing time and you end up getting that outcome way ahead of when you thought you would mm-hmm. get it. And it's way better than you thought it was going to be. But every time I've done that, and I have one now for this company, my biggest company I'm running now, um, magic happens. This is magic happens. And I, I learned all this from reading autobiographies of people who come before me. And um, if you read Richard Branson's autobiography and you know, all, all the sort of modern day entrepreneurs, you'll find that they all have these patterns of behavior, even though they may not recognize it in themselves. <clears throat> so I put this all together in a book called uh, Three Simple Steps. So it's the three simple steps that got me out of quicksand. And and I've, I teach the three simple steps through my course Transform- Transformation. But it's basically meditation, getting into nature and setting these really big, beautiful, exciting, awe-inspiring intentions. And that's all there is to it. And 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 uh, I think um, a lot of people that might be listening to this thing said, okay, like thinking big, I've heard this like a million times before, but I think like, um, like, I think most people don't really realize how practical thinking big actually is. Like for instance, like a lot of guys that I've talked to in my life that are like having just normal jobs and not that there's anything wrong with having like a normal office job or something, but um, they they always are pessimists and they are always thinking small. They are like always like, okay, this can never happen. This will not happen in a million years. Like, like you can't charge so much money. Like no one will buy this. And um, I think like um, thinking small, um, that's a consequence of, of thinking small is or, or being negative is like, man, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like it, you won't get nowhere. Like <laughs> nothing will happen in your life if you're thinking like that. I think that there's like a real consequence of um, thinking small. And I think, uh, yeah, thinking big is just really practical advice. So you know, it, there's a truth, there's a scientific truth that what you think about you get. Simple as that. Yeah. And it could be proven because you build your neural pathways. By, by when, you, when you start to think big, you set up a whole new scientific process in your brain and you build new neural pathways. And, and I, I again learned that when I was very young because I, I, was, I, was, I, wanted, I wanted to join the Royal Navy as an officer. Well, from that place where I lived, no one had ever been an officer. It was unheard of. And, and, the, and the officer college was very elitist. Right honorables and prime minister's sons go to it, you know, not people like me. Um, and in order to get in, I, I, so I, in order to get that, I had to get to the interviews, and, and to get to interviews, I had to have a good physics background, and I was supposedly crap at physics. And while I was hiding in the library, I started reading physics books, but they were university-level physics books, but it was I was killing time, right? And mm. and I didn't realize what I'd done is set off a neural process in my brain. So so a little while after that, I'm, you know, we had a summer vacation. After the summer vacation, I went back to school, and I was the number one person in physics. And only because Crazy. it seemed so easy. It suddenly seemed easy because I was thinking on a much bigger bigger level. It was a really key lesson for me. And so I, I took that approach too to you know to say, right, this is what I'm gonna do with my life. I'm gonna become an officer in the Royal Navy. Little Trevor from a little scruffy <laughs> village with a with a, a tree poking through the roof in his bedroom is gonna become an officer in the Royal Navy. And you know what I did in nineteen seventy nine? There I was. And uh, Crazy. Uh, had a great time and, but, it, but and, it's magic of thinking big you know that's it and 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 
because you are such a well-read person you've and 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 you've built those big big companies you've scared your companies to such big numbers like what do you what would you tell our listeners like what are some key key life insights that you think really made a difference in your life like i think everyone who's listening to this would love to hear this i i think self-confidence is the key to it all and 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 it's not just my opinion it's so all this all this you know, surveys and studies that have been done of what make people quote unquote successful. Mm-hmm. They're typically done by academics and management consultants who've never actually been successful, but they they observe people who are successful and they say, okay, it's because of these things. It always comes down to uh, self-confidence and a tendency to set targets. Those two things show up in every well done. There's, there's loads of crap surveys that I'm with reading, but the well, well, ones that are well done, like the guy that invented the IQ test, he did a a, a multi-decade longitudinal study of, of, of genius level people and what made some of those geniuses successful and some of them not. And he came down to the same thing, self-confidence and a tendency to set targets. And that's what I've brought into my life. So I have lots of tools and techniques to to make that sound a lot fancier than it is. But if you distill <laughs> them down to that, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. This. So um, Trevor, at the end, I always ask five questions to every podcast guest. But um, before I ask those five, five questions, like, What would you say to everyone who is listening to this right now? Anything you want to highlight on philosophy, scaling your business, selling, getting customers, entrepreneurship, what have you? Like anything you want to highlight, maybe share with us your quote unquote, like best life advice. Like what would you tell to everyone who is listening to this? In in truth, not just me, but a lot of people and a lot of successful entrepreneurs are saying the same thing right now, right now. I, don't, I think history will show that there's never been a better time to reinvent yourself and chase your dreams. And also, there's never been a better time to achieve mm-hmm. rapid financial independence. And I mean rapid. You can go from zero to something tremendous in a very short period of time. And most people are going to miss it because they're living in fear and panic. They're hiding behind the sofa in a fetal position because of COVID-19 or, the, or they've lost their job or the depression is coming. This is the time to reinvent yourself. There will never be a better time. Enough this. Um you aren't on social media so where can people connect with you on the on the internet um buy your books by your course so so i I do have some facebook uh, private groups by invitation only Um, but uh, so everything you can get everything trevorgblake.com okay got it first out of the five question is uh what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life Uh, it's hard to pick it's hard to pick just three but there's uh the ones I go back to the most would have to be the ones that have had the most influence because I keep going back to them as reference manuals almost. So uh, The Secret Doctrine by Helena Blavatsky from uh, 1850, mm-hmm. I think it, I think it was. Um, I What's like that anything. about? Um, it's a theosophy book. So it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's a it's about it's like about 900 pages of very hard to understand stanzas. Uh, the thing about knowledge is if you you know if you read knowledge is also energy so you have to let it filter and you have to let it work with your energy and then you learn it's not like mm-hmm. you know reading it and understanding it that it's a it's a different process um and so she's a theosophist and well she was world famous is still has this amazing following um but it's a it's really about um understanding this physical experience that we call life mm-hmm. um so so um I, I, go, I go back to it frequently. It's like a Bible of mine. Um, the book that had the most influence in terms of me setting intentions and realizing that I was more than I thought I was was a Wayne Dyer book called Real Magic. 
and uh, Wayne Dyer was you know was a self-help guru who sort of got himself out of drug addiction and alcohol addiction and became you know like like many self-help gurus then thinks he knows how to teach people how to live life just because he managed <laughs> to correct his own but uh, but he had these beautiful techniques in there that I thought thought you know I'll try that and they and they work so I I read that book so so many times until it was it was like almost crumbled uh, crumbled to nothing and and then anything by Paulo Coelho so I particularly like mm. so, so yeah, the road to Santiago and yeah and the alchemist um he yeah. is a magi and uh you know he, his original book when in in brazil was called you know the art of the magi he had to change the title for the american market and stuff but anything by him it's the, his writing is so layered that you can read it and enjoy it just because it's a good story yeah or you could read it let the let the information play with your energy and then you realize that he's teaching you magical techniques he's teaching you alchemy and then you can bring that into your life like i bring it into, into building businesses you know yeah, um, uh, I also love Paulo Coelho. I think he's like a fantastic, fantastic writer, like very gifted person. So, um, doesn't write fast enough for me. I get so frustrated. He's, you know, <laughs> when's his next book coming out? <laughs> Second question is, uh, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Uh, so I enjoy uh, a movie not many people know called Lily of the Fields from the 1960s. It was uh, Sidney Poitier was nominated as best supporting actor, and for the mm -hmm. first time, it was it was groundbreaking at the time because it was you know nothing changes does it the more things change the more they stay the same so there's so much racism in the 60s and you know I, growing up I just couldn't figure that out what difference does a person's complexion make but but uh, it was the first movie where nobody mentioned the fact that he wasn't white in the whole movie it was just about his <laughs> character and I, I i it was eye-opening to me at the time but the but the main reason that it's a beautiful story about he he's, he's come out of prison and, and he's uh he, he drives past a, a a place where there's three nuns and they think that god has sent him to build a chapel and he just wants something to eat and then the story takes off and it's a beautiful story and cool. uh, but it was but it was my mother's favorite film so i ended up having to watch it again and again and again when i was growing up with my mom and she my mother was a special character she, when i was seven she was given six months to live she had breast cancer and um, I, I saw her one time she was a religious woman in her own way i suppose but i saw her one time when i was uh, i was looking through a door and she looked up to the sky through the kitchen window and she said i'll tell you when i'm ready to come i'm not ready to die yet and, and that was the first time i saw what sort of indefatigable looks like that that power that but women's determination is something t to behold. And uh, I saw it in her eyes for the very first time. And, and you know what? She was a woman of her word because she didn't eventually die until I was 21. She managed to fight it for that long. And it was fantastic. I learned so much uh, from, from my mother. So every time I, you know, every time I watch Lily of the Fields, then obviously it reminds me of my mom. So that's a nice, <laughs> nice thing. And, and on a sim similar vein, um, so Love Actually, I mean, mm -hmm. it's kind of a corny Christmas film, but I love the Britishness of it. I love the eccentricity of it. And it just It's a film that makes me smile. But what I like about it most is the beginning and ending scenes because the commentary, Hugh Grant's commentary says, you know, as he remembers 9-11, you know, people were using their phones. He doesn't remember people sending messages of hate. They were all messages mm. of love. And so Love actually is a film about love. It's, it's about love is all around. And when they did the beginning and ending scenes, they were filming in Heathrow Airport. Every, every you know, in most movies, every scene is, is constructed false. You know, it's a bunch of actors these were real people coming in coming into arrivals running into each other's arms kissing and cuddling each other and um, on one of the cds is a commentary from from um, 
what's his name, the director, Richard Curtis. And he says that those were real scenes. It was so easy to do, but then they had to get permission from everyone to say, can we use this in the film? And then a collage comes of all these. There's no hate. There's no, there's, I think the, my, my message is really that when things get you down, like daily death counts of COVID and nonsense like that, and media tries to use, you know, the crisis to paralyze you with fear, play a movie like Love Actually. And you realize mm-hmm. that that's not the real world on there, on the media. This is the real world. This is what the real world is like. So I, I, I like to, I, I use it to remind myself and other people um, a lot a lot about uh, about that. And um, <clears throat> and then the third movie is, is a really crap movie called um, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. And uh, I watched that movie simply because my wife loves slapstick and it makes her belly laugh. And I just love to hear her laugh. So I put that movie on. It doesn't matter how many times she sees it. There's a couple of scenes that will have a, her curled up, you know, with a real belly laugh. And I, I, lo- I just, that sound is music to my ears. So, so that's why they're my favorite three movies. Got it. Third question is, um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Um, probably these headphones, actually, <laughs> I would think. Um, what kind of headphones are those? Uh, well, I I bought them by mistake. I wasn't paying attention, and these are gaming oh, okay. headphones. And I've never gamed. <laughs> I've never gamed in my life. Um, but the sound is fantastic, so I'm really really enjoying them. But actually, um, this is going to sound a bit quirky. But my wife and I we love to cook, and I bought um, a special egg maker, and it's in the shape of an egg, and mm-hmm. um, it it does boiled eggs, poached, and all, and all the rest of it. Very easy to use and quite fascinating. Uses very clever science to, to, and you can never get the eggs wrong. Everyone that's visited my house has gone off and bought one. <laughs> <laughs> when they've used it <laughs> so mm-hmm. i like i love my gadgets so i like kitchen gadgets a lot so and, and where what, what what kind of brand is this or yeah where can people uh check out about this you know i don't know what i don't know what it is <laughs> i don't know what brand it is <laughs> okay oh, okay no problem yeah. fourth question is um what are the most important revelations that you've had in the last couple of years and we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about their relationships life their business so speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today most important revelations oh it's a hard one um i i think for me that as as i've got older because i'm up you know i'm up there in years now um how blessed i am to you know, when when Lynn walks into the room, my heart still jumps a beat as it did the first time I saw her. And when I, f- I thought I didn't realize how rare that was, you know. So I think over the years, that's been a been a sort of a an eye opening moment for me how few people have had that bit of magic in their lives, and I I wish pe- more people would have it. Um, it, it happened. I, so I, I um I was on compassionate leave from the navy because my mum was having was was really you know sort of towards the end of her life. And I, it was my turn to take her to the hospital for chemotherapy. And I really didn't want to do it. I was being selfish because it was a soccer game on TV I wanted to watch. And so, so I, I reluctantly took her to the to the hospital and I was reading her through the chemotherapy ward and a nurse came out of a side door and they hugged and I realized these two really like each other. And that was my wife. And so my mother introduced, one of the last, uh, one of the last things on earth was to introduce me to my future Crazy. wife. But I was very shy and everything. It took me six months to build up the courage to ask her out. But uh, but I did eventually. But uh, but I was in, in that moment, my whole life changed because our eyes connected, and I I was I knew it as like I'd be, I'd be shot in the head here. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Imagine a magical moment for for me. I, it's you know it surprised me how rare that is and how lucky I am that I still feel that way every time I look at it. 
you know uh, even though we've got yeah, up in ages I, I still see her like she's you know 22 years old <laughs> last question for the day what would you tell your 20 year old self to get into my own business right away don't mm -hmm. do that long-term career bs stuff you know everybody has the ability to be their own boss and figure it out i used to think there was a magic place where ceos went to to learn to become ceos i thought they had a talent or a knowledge that i didn't hadn't been exposed to yet and then when i got to their level i realized they're just making it up they're making it up as they go along and that's what you do in business so so i wish i'd learned i wish i'd known that and hadn't been so intimidated at 20 years old you know i used to look at the managing director and that was god or something now now that i know the truth at 20 years old i'd start my own thing i love this so uh Trevor, uh, this has been no bullshit. One of my favorite like entrepreneurship business episodes so far. So um, yeah, thank you so so much for your time, sharing your advice with us. Uh, I think this was a great episode. Thank you, Hardy. Appreciate it. and great questions by the way. Really enjoyed that. <laughs> Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.